G'day everyone, this is Greg Ryan and welcome to episode 39 of Rare and Resilient 1 in 5000 podcast where we're talking IAARM and today we are joined by Joe from County Durham in England who is 32, who was born with imperfect anus. G'day Joe, welcome to the podcast mate. How's it going Greg, you alright? Yeah mate, good mate, we've been chatting for a little while now but uh this is the first chance i've had to uh get you on the podcast i'm really looking forward to it our stories are very very similar aren't they yeah mate yeah i was really touched by reading your book and that's really why i sort of started this journey going on the social media it just really it really pulled at my heartstrings and i really related to it um as i'm sure a lot of us with imperfect anus did it was a, <laughs> i said to you before didn't i, I said that it brought me to tears but in a good way so i sort of was allowed me to like express emotion that i didn't really think think I had to be honest in regards to the to the trauma that comes with imperfect anus well done with that <laughs> oh that's a pleasure mate like it took me 54 uh, years to um come out as we say but it's only taken you 32 but uh I'm 20 ahead of you <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes that's right I'm glad that my book A Secret Life was was able to sort of like touch you in that way and I suppose give you confidence that you aren't alone and that you can talk about it. Absolutely, yeah. I've sort of been, like you said in the book, you're, you're living a life of secrecy and I just got sick of it, to be honest, I think. Obviously, when you're 32, I think you care less about what people think as well, so that helps. And as well, I'm not chasing girls anymore. I've got my wife, I've got my, my children, so I don't need to feel the need to impress anyone because I think the main concern for me, and it sounds really shallow, was was girls, as, especially as a teenager, was meeting girls and I didn't want anyone to feel like to think that I'm disgusting. Um, not that they would, not that they have ever, but you know that them concerns were were the forefront of my mind all throughout my teenage years. I can absolutely relate. Like you know, in some ways, I was I was petrified of a girl finding out more than anything else. Then your secret would be exposed. Like I never had my first relationship till I was twenty six, because right. of just being so petrified that the secret may get out let's start at your childhood mate how did you deal with get growing up and with this school and how your parents relayed their condition to you etc so i was actually speaking to i rang my mum on the way back from work tonight actually just to sort of get some of the information because obviously it's a at that age like between you know zero to six it's it's all pretty much faded memory i, I don't really remember much but she said in the hospital that they noticed after an hour or so the nurses that I, I didn't that my anus was missing. Um, they whisked me away to intensive care, and then I got the um, colostomy on the first day. But we fast forward to the age of three, and I think I still had the colostomy then. They did um, create a surgical opening, but they put it in the wrong place. My anus, which wasn't great, um, there was no muscle control whatsoever. And then my mum tells me a story about when I was three. It was it's obviously really still um, difficult for her to talk about what she was saying about um, how she tried to get me in a nursery and they were all for it. I was going to go to uh, St. Mary's Catholic nursery, but they stopped me at the last second. I got in there for the introduction and they said that because I couldn't control my bowels, that they weren't going to allow me to participate in the nursery. So obviously it was a heartbreaking moment for my mum, she says, because she had to explain to them, like, he's probably never going to have control of his bowels. It's not it's not an age thing with joy. It's, so yeah, that was really tough for her, I think, and my dad. I always say for the first few years, the parents are the ones that they, they carry the burden and every day oh. like, we don't, because we're so young, we don't know, but 
the, our parents, what they had to go to. And back, especially back in our days, like there was no social media, no support mm-hmm. groups, no one knew anything about the condition. And I think that's why I keep on my social media, I keep bigging up the parents because I just want to keep reminding them how amazing they are because if it happened to my children, I'm not sure how, how I'd react. The first thing I asked the, uh, the midwife when my daughters were born was, did he have a bum hole? Because I was so terrified that it was going to happen to them. And honestly, that is a really legitimate question to ask. In our adult group, we've got six adults that have children born with IA. Mm-hmm. And, and more recently, I have a very close friend of mine from Australia who has a, a two-year-old son was born with IA and she recently had a daughter six weeks ago and she was also born with it. It's only because finding more adults like ourselves and and where that's when we're finding the statistics are a lot higher than people ever thought for people who are uh, born with the condition. Yeah, I just think like parents are um, caregivers are just the difference between I just think if my mum and dad didn't bring me up in the way that I had done, I don't think I'd be the same person today. Like, they always instilled, I don't know, sort of a confidence in me and a self-belief. And I'm so, so grateful for that. that I'm so lucky that the fact that I had amazing parents who were telling me I was beautiful and, and you know, them sort of things. And my mum tells me times about when, when I had my costume. She says I had, like, a double costume, but we're not sure what that is. I don't know whether you've, you've heard of that. There was, like, two strawberries, as we used to call them. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, that's right, um, yeah. She said, yeah, it was quite harrowing to hear, this, to hear the tale of her telling me that I was shouting and saying that it's all her fault and that I'll, I don't want to live anymore. And this was at the age of five. That I was saying things like this, but obviously with their love and encouragement that, you know, I was, <laughs> I got better and I, I was still, obviously, it's traumatic today. But, but yeah, they're amazing. I just want to keep, <laughs> keep <laughs> in case they're listening, and they will listen. So <laughs> It's wonderful, mate. And I can totally understand that the parents are the heroes in this. I've got no doubt about that, in my experience anyway, and and it sounds like with yours is exactly the same. When you got to school, how did you handle that? So, I mean, primary school, like the, that sort was pretty easy. I think I sort of just assumed that this was normal and everyone sort of lived like this, I guess. I didn't really question it too much until I got to uh, high school. And I can remember in, in the year seven, the first year that I used to have to have the special needs teachers come around to my house to try and get me to go to school because I was just so afraid that I was going to have an accident and embarrass myself in front of the, the class. And that was, and I think I always try to, to think back on my times at school, but a lot of it seems to be faded because I don't know whether I've just blocked it out, to be honest. <laughs> I'm, I'm really not sure how I, how I did it when I think back because it seems more terrifying now, I guess. But I just got on with things. I had a supportive mum and I had a dad who was more just, you know, just get on with things. It could be worse. And I think the, what's the word? The difference between their two parenting styles really helped, I think. But yeah, I can remember just having lots of accidents and having to, I had like a special card where I used to just be able to leave the classroom at any time and walk out the school gates. But not every teacher was aware that this was a thing. So I used to get stopped and it was really embarrassing having to tell a grown adult that I've just had an accident. And a lot of them looked at you as if like, what? What are you telling me that you've just had an accident in your pants? And it was that was probably the worst I've experience to teachers because I just felt so ashamed of myself. The fact that, you know, I was 11, 12, 13 years old and had to leave and, yeah. Those sort of experiences, they mould you to what, how you become, I believe. I know I had, <laughs> I can remember the first time 
I had an accident in the back of the classroom and I knew that I'd had an accident and the kids say, oh, what smells here? You know, and you sort of like become the smelly kid and those things yeah. just never leave you. No, no, absolutely. I mean, there's a, when I went to the school parties when I was 12, 13 and, and the youth club and whatnot, I can remember one time really quite vividly, it, it must have been a bad one. Like I was in the youth club and I just sat there and I, I had an accident and I could tell it was smell. No one wanted to say anything, but I just sat there and just sobbed in my hands and just said, I don't feel very well. And just wait. They wouldn't let me leave the centre because of, you know, the safety and whatnot. And I, yeah, that one always sticks with me. I just sat crying, um, just acting as if I was unwell, but they must have smelt it. <laughs> yeah. They must have. Yeah, that's always going to stick with me, that one. But there's plenty of stories like that. There are plenty of stories where I can have a laugh at as well when I look back. After a few months or a few years, when you can sort of look at it and, and think, yeah, that was quite funny. Is nothing? No one dies. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you had that attitude, mate. Because I could, even no. even as of even as of today, I can't deal with toilet humour. No, All no, right. no. It's just it's just too it's too triggering for me in some You're respect. Wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and that's me. But I'm glad you could <laughs> see the funny <laughs> side of it. That's great. <laughs> We learn those coping mechanisms at such an early age. And and I say to parents now that you learn to have this adapt and adjust mentality. Mm-hmm. Because at any stage, anything could happen and you get, could, could get caught out. And you become mature a lot earlier than I think other kids because of that. And mm-hmm. your, your mind's wired a different way. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many times where at school where you got invited to the sleepovers or to the activities like the camping and things like that, where I had to act as if that I didn't want to do those things. I had to pretend like I didn't want to do those things. So as if it just didn't really appeal to me. And that really hurt me because they have got that impression that I was just boring. I didn't, I wasn't outgoing, but really I would love nothing more than to go camping with the lads and go to festivals. And when I was getting a little bit older and, you know, so that really hurts having to, it's sort of pretending to be someone that you're not just to save face and not, risk like the, your secret coming out sort of thing so yes yeah that wasn't nice and i still no. do that as an, as an adult to be honest with you a few years ago even just it's, well, it's only very recently that i've decided to just tell everyone and if they don't like it then tough but yeah just when the lads are organizing nights out when it's a little bit further afield i have to act like i don't really want to go out of town and stuff but really i do i just know that i can't it's not worth the risk <laughs> I had a similar situation when all my mates and their partners and that, they go on camping weekends. I could never do that because unless there was a toilet there, like I just couldn't have that confidence. No, it breaks your heart, doesn't it? That's it, actually heartbreaking. And I think people who don't have these sorts of issues just cannot appreciate the fact that if I say it to my mates or I might shit myself and they say, oh, well, I've done that before, but they just don't quite get it that it doesn't haunt you constantly 24 7 it's in the back of your mind that's yeah you might have done it when you were drunk one time and it just it doesn't relate it's not the same thing but they try and i know they're only trying to help and make me feel a little bit better but <laughs> but they just cannot relate in it and it's so frustrating but i know they're just trying to be nice <laughs> now how did you find it when you got to that 15 16 year old age where you know you're thinking about the opposite sex and it sounds like you're mentality your attitude was a bit different to mine whereas i would just so no i just couldn't go there i was a bit more open to the idea if i found the right sort of person where i knew i could put my trust in so i'd always just 
from the ages of what, 15, 16, 17, kissed girls. But if they tried to get any further than that, I sort of pushed them away as if I just wasn't wasn't quite ready for it. And maybe I wasn't really ready anyway, but putting the imperfect anus aside and, and whatnot. But it took me to 17 when I finally met someone where I was with her for quite a long time. And I, and I just re- felt like I really had to put my trust in the first. But, you know, it's terrifying anyway, being 15, 16, 17 and meeting girls. But with the yeah. fact that I, at the time it, I had a catheter that I wore permanently, so I just thought this is not going to be a good look <laughs> for me to just latch yourself. So I can still remember telling the, this girl who I was with, I was with her for three years and I can still remember telling her I was in floods of tears, crying my eyes out, coming out. I, I think I got myself a little bit drunk just so I had a little bit of confidence to tell her. And it didn't go anywhere near as bad as I thought it would. She was just totally like months plus, just <laughs> fine with it. And we stayed together for three years, so she kind of been that put off. <laughs> yeah, but no. it was absolutely terrifying, to be honest with you. But I think once I've, I told the first girl, it, it did become a little more easier. Not easy, but but yeah, I've never been a one night stand sort of person. I'm sure a lot of us with imperfect aims were probably the same. We're probably yeah, absolutely. But I think that's it's in my morals as well. I don't think I'm that sort of person, but I often think, what would I be like if I didn't have imperfect aims? What I think I would be, it would. I think it's definitely changed me. I think positively as well, though. You're right, because people who haven't got our condition, they don't have to worry about the hygiene side of it. They don't have to worry about you could have an accident at any time without any warning. It doesn't come into the mentality. And to try to explain that to people, they sort of can understand, but unless you live it, it's impossible to understand. Yeah, to a certain level, they, they get it, but they... They can't truly empathise because they've never been through that. Now, now they, how did you cope mentally during the school years? You know, I was saying this, I was speaking to my mum earlier, and I, I don't really know, and I'm trying to think back, how did I cope? I think I surrounded myself with a lot of good friends. I did have a really good large group of friends that were all, they all sort in about five or to eight of them knew something was wrong with me. They didn't quite know what was wrong with me. All what I used to tell people was that I had something wrong with my kidney and that's why I put my tube in. Um, I just found that kidney sounded less disgusting in my yes. head at the time. I just thought that's less embarrassing rather than talking about poo and bowels. I'll just say I was born with one kidney and so that's why I had to put my tube in and it seemed to to help. But in terms of coping during my teenage years, I guess it's just, just sort of pretending like there was nothing wrong with me and I don't think that's probably... As very the best advice to give any young person. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Like, yeah, you say you pretended. I felt like I was in denial. When I'd be home, I was IA Greg with the mm-hmm. toilet and being the focus. But as soon as I walked out past mm-hmm. the front gate, I had to mm-hmm. turn myself into a different person for the whole oh, day yeah. until I got home again. Yeah, it's as if you've even forgot that that, that side of you even exists when you're out and you're putting on sort of a performance, I guess. And- and you become really good at excuses as well, don't you, if you have to leave. Oh. <laughs> but then that feels, you feel dishonest because you're having to lie to your friends rather than just telling the truth. Well, I felt dishonest anyway. But there's so many times, that's why I got called, that's why I've called myself Mr. Magic Toilet on socials because often I would just, just leave and not say a word or I would come up with these elaborate excuses. And I just got a little bit of a reputation of always leaving the night out early with the lads. <laughs> so Magic Toilet in the northeast of England, that's what refers, refers to just leaving. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Without without saying a word, so he's done a magic toilet. That's what people would say. 
I used to drive everywhere. I never used to drink because that would allow me to just leave and just drive home when mm-hmm. I just knew that I needed to get out. Yeah, it's, it's obviously a comfort blanket, isn't it? To, see, for me, I've always drunk, I, I guess, just to, to try and fit in. Um, and I enjoy a drink, I do. And I've always just been a little bit of a risk taker, so I just thought, well, if it happens, it happens. I'll be drunk, I won't care. I'll still be able to sort myself out. And there's been some compromising times. But yeah, I think what you did was probably the most sensible <laughs> choice to be fair. <laughs> oh, we, all, we all come up with the strategies that work for ourselves, mate. Now, I, I honestly believe that us being males really impacted on keeping the secret like we did because males don't want to talk about anything that happens below the waist. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult and it's not something that we could bring up in a conversation other than these blokes would start laughing and joking, trying to not focus on what we're talking about, if that, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, so, yeah, it does. When I played football, there was a lot of locker room talk and it was stuff like, oh, especially when you're younger, he shit himself, he shit himself, and that always made, used to make me, so not about me, just about anyone and just, you know, them sort of general jokes and that used to make me feel so uncomfortable and so sort of emasculated because deep down I know that this does happen to me and and I would even join him with a joke, to be honest with you, just to try and save face. But yeah, I definitely think that it's difficult for men to talk about, even... As I've, I've noticed, as I've gotten my 30s, I've cared less. Other men seem to care less. I've told a lot of people I went on the stag do in um, August of this year. Came home after the first night, mind, but never mind. <laughs> but yeah, I, t- I told a lot of people there when I was, I had a few drinks and no one was bothered. No one cared less. We focus more on it than other people focus on. Yeah, but it's your, it's your thing. It doesn't mean everyone else is thinking about it constantly 24-7. So you, you becomes this big, giant this big giant thing in your mind and, and really no one probably cares that much. And how did you adjust from going from school to working? Quite poorly, to be honest. So I went to college and then I went to university and then I went to work and I started working in factories, which is not really a great fit for someone who needs to go to the toilet. If you've noticed, so. <laughs> not at all. So I was working on a line in a lot of them and obviously you need to be on that line you can't just leave to go to the toilet and for people like us if we get a stomach bug that's us written off like we cannot we can't leave the house that's no. just inconceivable so i think i i lost about three jobs just purely being having a stomach flare-up or a, or a bug i never really wanted to work in factories it was just sort of you know a, a stop gap at the time so in terms of adjustment i don't think i really adjusted really quite well until i found that i needed to be sort of in an office environment. Um, yeah. So I work in an office now as a care coordinator. Yeah, it's just a very, really quiet office. There's only three of us usually in three blocks. They all know, they both know about my condition, but they obviously do now because they've seen me social media. But there's a toilet right near, so it's a shame because I would have loved to be in sort of a paramedic or, or something like that, but it's just, I don't, it, it, couldn't, it couldn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> if we're in the middle of an emergency, it just... Or a, or a nurse, even my dad's a nurse. I would have liked to maybe pursue that, but I'm not reliable enough due to my my condition. And I just, you know, you can't let people down when you're a paramedic. You can't just say, oh, hang on, I'm going to the toilet. You're just having a heart attack there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. a shame. What, what about you? How did you find? I realised practically straight away when I was leaving school that there was no way known that I could work in anything other than an office environment. It was just not feasible for me. Mentally, I just wouldn't have been able to dealt with it. 
I was lucky. I, I worked in banks for 25, 30 years, and they were sort of like, you know, mostly back office. So you could come and go from your office, your desk and all that. And the one thing that I was glad to leave school for, because I could then wear black pants and feel more safer. When I was at school, our uniform was these really light gray long pants that you could... It's just a work for us. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, I, I walked, I did every every day at school for six years in my high school years, I walked around with a jumper around my waist so no one Sorry, could see the stain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I've from... done that so many times. I really relate to that in your book when you mentioned that. I thought, oh my goodness, it's like you're speaking to me. <laughs> like I've done that so many times. I've always brought a jacket with me just in case, tight around the waist. Yep, <laughs> that's right. And it's, and it's those little things. So I was I was really comfortable in an office environment, even though I kept my secret. I was I was able to, you know, adapt and adjust to what I needed. For those people who who live with IA, who more outdoor active type roles, I I tip my hat to them how they can do it. Yeah. And it's incredible how many people, especially the adult females that I've met, I know, who actually are nurses. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that, and I'm just thinking, wow, like how amazing is that? Yeah, the it's like, like I don't have that bravery. I just I, would, I haven't put myself out there like that. Yeah, and I I've got no doubt it's because of what we had to deal with when we were young. You you rely on the medical staff so much, but to see that these wonderful women mostly, and there there are some guys that are nurses as well, but to actually do it on a daily basis is just mm-hmm. extraordinary to me. Yeah, same. It's incredible. It really is. Just saying, what I've noticed as well is, is the amount of nurses that have commented on my social media pages saying that they've never heard of the ACE procedure. Um, it was just really brought my mind. Just, it must be really quite quite rare. And I didn't. I thought just assumed that everyone in the medical field would know about it, but I was really wrong. And it's really quite insightful to know that the like there was special storm, storm of specialist nurses that have commented on my pages saying they've never heard of it of an, of the integrated content cinema. And it's just really quite remarkable, really, isn't it? Like like last year, I had a lot of surgeries to do with my IA. I went in the hospital <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to talk to each of the nurses before I get to the surgery mm-hmm. and say, do you know, have you heard about imperfect anus anorectal malformation? And these are all dealing with colorectal issues. By the time I left the ward and got into the theatre, I'd spoken to four or five different nurses and not mm-hmm. one of them have ever heard of imperfect anus. And I was having imperfect anus surgery. Well, so, I bet, bet that put you at ease then, didn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. And it just goes to show <laughs> what we have to do to help that transition from paediatrics to adult, because paediatric surgeons and nurses have heard of the condition. And everyone mm-hmm. thinks we, ha- we are a solely paediatric issue. But we get old, but yeah, the condition doesn't leave us. <laughs> And that's why it's so important that, you know, we create this awareness and put it out there. And what you say about the ACE, which is known as a Malone in countries as well, like the more people that are aware of that, the better. When did you first have that, get the ACE and, well, the Malone? Uh, And how how has it changed your life? So I was only five years old when I got got the ACE. So obviously my parents made that decision for me. Um, That was in 1995. So I think I was one of the first person, and it was in the RBI hospital in Newcastle, but 
it seems to me that everyone thinks that they were the first person to get the ears <laughs> in my comment section. Yeah. So I think someone must have been the first, but it definitely wasn't me. But they said that I was one of the first maybe in the RBI hospital in Newcastle. I've got sort of memories about my mum and dad. I don't know whether I'm remembering it or I'm remembering them telling me it, of them having to pin me down and, and stick my catheter in. I was screaming in pain. But after the first few weeks, like, it just gave me so much more freedom, according to my parents. And it's so much more discreet, I found, than the, the colostomy. And the so, rectal enemas. Yeah, I don't think I ever had any. <laughs> Not that I can remember. <laughs> I might have. I think, uh, you know, I may have. Who knows? But yeah, ever since then, I like, I've never had any infections. I've never had, actually, this morning, it didn't really work properly. So I was late for work. Uh, luckily, I've got a lovely boss. Um, but that's them moments are few and far between. I would say that's once every four months that it doesn't work. It just doesn't quite go through that, the way I would like it, whether that's because of my diet or, or it's just random. I don't really know. It can get sore sometimes, but I found that most people that are commenting on my social media are saying that they wear a stopper inside the race so that it doesn't close up the storm. Yep. Since I was 15, I just sort of stopped wearing one. Uh, mm. So it's just totally open. I just cover it with my boxer shorts. And as long as I put my catheter in every morning, which I, I do have my washout every morning because my bowels are really active, then it doesn't close up, which is which is strange. I sort of have to like pace it almost every morning. But do you know what? It does get me down sometimes. I just get really envious that people can wake up much later than I can in the morning, get a shower, go to work. But with me, it's this whole process. And yeah, you get used to it. But some days you just think, oh, I really cannot be bothered. Especially when it's cold and you sat on the toilet for an hour and a half, <laughs> and I've got a little, I've got a little blanket that my partner bought me, which is lovely. She brought me a couple of Christmases ago that I would use on the toilet. But yeah, it does really get to you when it just doesn't seem fair sometimes. And I don't want to sound like I'm feeling sorry for myself because, and there's a lot of people a lot worse off than I am. But yeah, it just doesn't quite seem fair sometimes. But hey, well, we've got to get on with it. <laughs> this is the hand we're dealt, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and I would thoroughly recommend anyone who hasn't seen any of Joe's videos on his Mr. Magic Toilet social medias on Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok to check them out because he actually gives a demonstration of how to how he does his procedures every morning, and I reckon it'd be wonderful for parents to show their kids that who may be considering going down that track. So. Well done on doing all those, mate. I know they've been really enlightening to so many people across the world. So I, uh, I really truly congratulate you on that. Thank you. It's been really good for me as well, just from a selfish point of view. It's just been really good. It's like a release. The weight's been lifted. So obviously, I wanted to help people. That was the first and foremost reason I, I started the account. But it has it has really helped me, and it just given me like a new confidence that I've never had before, just by being so open and honest. And people are, are just so much so lovely, and it's. I'm so glad I've done the videos on the ace because there's a lot of people who who have messaged me or commented saying that they struggle with really bad uh, constipation, but they've never heard of this procedure. So they're now going to bring this to their doctor and maybe that could change their life. So that that's made me feel really, really great. Oh, that's wonderful, mate. That's wonderful. Now, I know you've been engaged for about six years and we've got three beautiful daughters. Joe, yes. can you talk about how UIA has affected you as a partner and as a father yeah well, that's a great one as a father i'll go first the thing that really bugs me with having ia and having to do my bowel wash out each morning is i can't really get up with the kids especially with rivers only one year old 
so I can't be the one to get up first and early with them because straight away I need to go and do my washout. So I can't supervise the children so that it's often keeps me up at night wondering what would what life be like if I was a single father, like how would I cope while doing the washout? They would have to, well, Murphy's fine, Murphy's four and Portia's 13, but I mean, in regards to River, who's only one, I don't think I'd be able to do that. To be honest, none of them really care. I'm putting my tube in, in front of them, they don't really know. <laughs> they, yeah. just, they don't ask questions, they don't, which is nice. They, Murphy's getting a little bit more curious, Murphy's four. She's asked a lot of questions quite recently, actually, but... She doesn't seem that interested at the moment. None of them do. <laughs> and they're all dad. <laughs> I just think, I think Murphy said the other day, I think she got confused and just assumed that all men had to put a, a catheter inside them, which was quite cute. <laughs> uh, but I had to explain, no, that's just daddy and, and a few other people maybe. But in terms of the relationship, it, it gets me down sometimes if I feel like I've ruined the day with the whole family. And I know they would never think that of me, but we can't help but just a feeling like that when you get a little bit self-loathing. When I'm out on activities, I've been to birthday parties with the, with the kids and I had to come home early and I think, like, this is really not fair on the um, on the children and the fact that I'm, it's, it's my fault that I've had to, you know, come away and, and take them away with me. So it's tough, but like I say, I've just, I've just got to get on with things. Like, I know I keep saying this, but this is a hand dealt, so I try not, not to get down for too long. I give myself an hour to feel sorry for myself. And then that's it. You've got to crack on because I need to be a dad at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, that's right, mate. You're very, very fortunate to be a father. You've got a very good attitude on towards it, mate. Now. Thank you. And from a relationship perspective, Joe, how has it affected you and your partner? Yeah, so I wouldn't say it's affected me too much, to be honest. Other than the occasional times if we are getting intimate um, when I've had to run to the toilet and that sort of ruins the mood. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't wear my catheter every day. Well, I only put it in for 10 minutes in the morning. She's just amazing. She's quite straight to the point. She doesn't give me too much sympathy, too much empathy, which is what I need sometimes if I am feeling sorry for myself. She's just like, just crack on. You need to get on with things. So she's really good for me in that respect. So she doesn't let me mourn too much and feel sorry for myself, which is great. But in terms of our relationship in regards to the IA, it's been it's been fine. Right. I'm just lucky to have such a, an amazing partner. She's so understanding. It doesn't yeah. phase her. How has she felt about you coming out as such and telling the world? Well, she, she likes to joke and say, I'm just loving the attention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On a serious note, though, I've, from what I gather, she's really proud of me. And she's, I often have these weird and wonderful ideas that I, that I go ahead with for a while. And she's sort of just like, yeah, yeah, just lets me get on with things. I get obsessed with hobbies and whatnot. But with this one, it seems a little bit dis- different, the support that I am getting from her. And she's looking at my socials. And when people are commenting negatively, she wants to she wants to comment back and, <laughs> and defend me. But I'm saying, no, no, it's only love. We're just promoting <laughs> promoting the love. And if they want to say something negative, that's up to them. But, but well, I'm not going to lower myself. But, yeah, she's been amazing, to be honest with you. Oh, well, and she absolutely should be proud of you, mate. I know I am. Thanks, mate. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you. Thanks, mate. Now, what would your greatest advice be to parents of an IA child now? Just to tell them and remind them constantly how much you love them, how amazing they are, and how beautiful they are as well. I know my mum absolutely showered me with love so much to the extent that I was <laughs> I was probably saying stop telling me all the time. But I guess and just try to encourage them to try things that that take them outside the comfort zone. At the end of the day, the worst things that can happen 
really in the grand scheme of things, yeah, they can feel really, really terrible to us. But if we don't try these things, like my dad made sure I, that I would, I would um, go on the school trips where he would maybe come along as a parent, like helper with the teachers. He took me to Leeds Festival when obviously a festival, that, that's a no-go for, for us guys. But what he did was he, he booked a hotel for us and we had to walk like three miles every day, got a bus, went to the hotel in the morning and then came back and he gave me the whole festival experience. So I guess, yeah, and just and just love them unconditionally and just and just keep reminding them how amazing they are. And But yeah, putting them outside the comfort zone, they did push me to do a lot of things. I did rock climbing, gymnastics, yeah, figure skating. I did so many things that really, looking back, like they were quite risky sports considering I was in a Lycra thing when I was doing the figure skating. I was in a Lycra outfit. <laughs> So if any accident happened then, I was doomed, but I can't actually remember any. So I'm, I'm really thankful that they did that. And that just proves that just because you have IA, it doesn't restrict you from doing activities that all other kids can do. Absolutely not. I guess you've just got to be a little bit more aware and vigilant and prepare. Yep. Um, yeah, preparation is key, so they say, but it's really true for people like us. Always have an emergency bag on your own. It's a little bit more um, frustrating and and terrifying, but I, I still got, I tried to get involved with as much as I could. I played football all my life for teams and stuff, and I really enjoyed that. So there was there was not that many things when I think about it that I couldn't do. What made you finally, you know, come out? Is the, as we say, what what was the what was the main reason? Was there a reason, or did it, can you not really think of the of a specific one? Uh... I think the main reason was that because I had a few nervous breakdowns and mm-hmm. I had to end up stopping working because I was living with the secret, the the mental stress of dealing with it every single day mm-hmm. and dealing with the physical, in the end, it just became too much. People would see me in the street because I ended up going on disability then people would see me in the street. They say, "Why did you give up your job?" Because I by, by that side, I was working with a football, my football club, North Melbourne, who, which was was my dream job. I loved it for ten years, loved it. And they say, "Why did you give up your work?" Like you know, you look well, everything's you know, and and I didn't. And people knew that I had some mental health issues, mm-hmm. but of course, you know, when you've got mental health issues, you look totally normal, as they say. But in the end. I just felt like I needed to see if I could find other... I needed a validation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I understand that. And it just happened to be one... I was having a really bad time of it over Christmas in 2004, it was. And I don't know how or why, but one night I was on my computer and I just typed in imperfect anus on Facebook. And I found some groups, which is, you know, the surprise the hell out of me. And in your mind, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I realized, hang on, I am not alone because I always thought I was the only person in the world with it. And then I slowly but surely started to talk about it in the safety of the online groups. Mm-hmm. The validation I found was felt in myself was incredible that everything I'd felt all my life that this was, I was, it was always my fault because when I was, we were young, my doctors and all that told us you were fixed. 
which with IA, we know that you're never fixed. So I always blamed myself, Joe, you know, and I would always internalize it because I didn't want to cause my parents any more grief because of when that, what they dealt with when I was young. So I got to stage after a couple of years being in the, the community, I then went overseas to a um, conference at the Pulfer Network and then led to me going, being invited to France to be a speaker at a pediatric uh, conference over there. And I come home from that and I was really buoyed by that, thinking that I think I've got a story to share and I didn't want kids to have to grow up like you and I grew up in <laughs> secret. And then a good friend of mine said to me, look, why don't you write a book? Your story's amazing, which, you know, I still, still, I can't believe all that it's been as popular and, uh, oh, it's amazing, Greg. <laughs> it is, but, uh, and that's just, and that's, I've gone from one extreme to the other by, I got the confidence and that was the thing, Joe, I got, it took me two years by talking within the community to get the confidence to feel like I could share it out and about. It wasn't a short process. Like, I, it didn't take me a month or two. I just needed to get to that. And it was a lot of sessions with my psychiatrist and my doctor to of the ramifications of me revealing my secret to the world. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and that's... Well, I'm glad you did. <laughs> oh, mate. That, oh, and I'm glad you did too, mate. <laughs> Thanks. Is there anyone that doesn't know you in the IA community? Because <laughs> everyone <laughs> seems to know you. You're so famous in the IA community. Oh, no, no. I, I just, I, I'm doing it all for the kids, mate. That's what I'm doing I it for. Like, I know you are. Everything's, everything's for the kids. And if we can, by sharing our stories, if we can shine a light on the condition, the mental health impacts and the physical health impacts on the medical community, I think that's the greatest legacy we leave because the more that we talk about it, the more that they understand the ramifications of having a lifelong condition and the effects it has. And I've got no doubt that the adults talking has impacted the way our condition gets viewed now, mm-hmm. in my opinion, because we're like the voice of the kids in some respect. Yeah. The parents are the, the, parents are the voice of the parents. But I suppose if we can if we can keep sharing our experiences, mm-hmm. it can help the parents then develop strategies and have the confidence to go to their doctors and challenge their doctors yeah. about the the child. It should not be you just have to deal with it. If there's no. opportunities to get further surgeries or get a second opinion, absolutely do it because mm-hmm. you know as you said you're. When you had your pull through, it was done in the wrong, wrong spot, and that's no one's fault. We we don't apportion blame to anyone, but because the condition is so rare, a lot of pediatricians or pediatric surgeons might only do one surgery, or they might only have one OA patient in their lifetime. Yeah, mm-hmm. in America now and here in Australia, we've got a dedicated colorectal center, and there's some in Europe. The more awareness and the more education we can put out there to the medical community as well as the families, I think can only be a it can only be a benefit, mate. It can't be yeah, a, a detriment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Um, just on a personal note, it's just really nice to meet you. I know you mean a lot to so many people, and um, I'm just so glad my mum <laughs> got in t- contact with you a few years ago. And yeah, I just think you, I don't, I don't like to uh, make you feel uncomfortable, but you really are an incredible person. Thank you. Appreciate the thoughts, mate. And I have spoke to your mum online as well, and it's it's great that you're a part of the community and being such a wonderful voice to us all, for us all, mate. Thank you. So, Joe, we might finish up now. It's It's been an absolutely wonderful chat. And once again, I encourage people to refer to your Mr. Magic Toilet uh, social medias outlets. And, you know, I can't thank you enough for what you're doing to re- raise awareness for the condition. And uh, it's been wonderful, mate. Oh, thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me. See you later, mate. See you later, Greg. Cheers, mate. Yeah, mate.